that part of Siberia. When I got to the institute on Monday morning and had tea and cookies with the institute director, which is part of the protocol you do each morning, she was ecstatic about this eclipse because she had never dreamed with the limited travel opportunities she had under the communist regime, she would never be anywhere on Earth where she could see a solar eclipse. And now there was going to be one on Wednesday. And so she said, now you've got to be sure everybody's out of class by 3 o'clock on Wednesday so they can get home and get with their children and see the eclipse. I'll do that. Tuesday morning I came in and she had a newspaper spread out across her desk that showed the progress of the eclipse across Russia. And she could do it, talk of nothing except this eclipse and ask me a half dozen times, now you're sure you're going to have everyone out of here by 3 o'clock Wednesday so they can see the eclipse. Yeah. Wednesday, every time I saw remember, you've got to have them out of here by 3 o'clock because this is a total solar eclipse. We don't want to miss that. So I dismissed them, went back to my apartment, watched it from the balcony. But it just so happened that by the time the eclipse got to that latitude in Russia, it was beginning to fade. And it was only a 99.5% eclipse. <laughs> when I came in Thursday morning for tea and cookies with her, she was an unhappy camper. <laughs> she was cursing, she was throwing things, she was pounding on her desk. And she looked at me and she said, the communists are gone and they are still lying to us. Ah. <laughs> they promised her a total eclipse and she only got a 99.5% eclipse. So I don't know what you were promised this morning, but this is what you did. <laughs> I want you to imagine yourself in a situation in the first century. Perhaps you live in North Africa, where Christianity is spreading rapidly. In fact, in the first few hundred years of Christianity, it was stronger across North Africa than most places in Europe. And you've now been persuaded to become a Christian. Making that commitment, you have a couple of concerns. One is, if you're going to wear the name of Christ, you want to know what it is that Christ really taught. And number two, you want to know how to live according to the expectations that are now on you because you wear the name Christian. How would you, how would you deal with those two concerns? You, you can't run down to the bookstore and buy a copy of the New Testament. It's still being written. And even if it were available, because it was hand copied, it was so expensive that most people couldn't afford to have their own copy of the Bible. And so you had to depend on word of mouth. You had to listen to what people told you that Jesus had said or done. But who could you trust? There were a lot of stories being circulated about Jesus that were pretty fanciful and fantastic. Some of them false gospels of the first and second century have come down to us today purporting to have been written by people like Peter or, or Thomas 
And they portray a picture of Jesus that is not at all consistent in many of its features with the story of Jesus we have from the Gospels and the New Testament. So there were all kinds of strange things you could hear about Jesus and what he taught. But who do I believe? And then the next question was particularly important. How do I determine the way that I should live as a Christian? Because Christianity, along with its Jewish roots, represented a movement that was completely different from any other religion in the ancient world. You see, whether you were in Rome, or the Middle East, or North Africa, Greece, wherever you might be in the ancient Mediterranean world, there was a divorce between religion and ethics. Religion consisted of the rituals, the ceremonies, the sacrifices that you made up at the temple. But you didn't go to the temple to hear a sermon on how to live. You didn't go to the temple to go to a Bible class on ethics. When you tried to get guidance on where to live, you went one of two places. In Greece and later in Rome, you went to the schools of philosophy. And the philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Pythagoreans, the Cynics, the various schools of philosophy would take you through a program of training in how to live an effective life. If you were in the Middle East or in Egypt, you went to a collection of things called the wisdom literature. These were documents very much like the book of Proverbs. Simply a collection of a lot of little one-line maxims about how to live an effective life. And so you would get your ethics from the wisdom literature or elsewhere from the schools of philosophy. But Judaism and Christianity have this strange idea. They have this strange idea that ethics is derived from the nature of our God. Because he is a God of love, we are to be a loving people. Because he is a truthful God, we must be truthful. Because he treats people with mercy, we must treat people with mercy. This is the only religion around where what you believe about God and what you practice in ethics are integrally connected. So... How do I figure out how I should live? It is in that setting that the elders of the early church played a vital and pivotal role. It was their responsibility to see that the teaching that was done in this body that they guided was in accord with what Jesus had said and what had been handed down to them by apostles and others who were eyewitnesses of his ministry or who had been passed it to others in a faithful way so that there was a, a clear line of teaching from Jesus to the present moment that was consistent with what his message was about. And secondly, these elders exemplified in their lives what it meant to be a Christian. And 
and the passages that we know well from 1 Timothy and Titus that talk about the requirements placed on those who would become elders, the emphasis is on their exemplary lives. Because as Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5, they are to be role models to the church. A church in which most members grew up in pagan and heathen and hedonistic lifestyles. And they don't know how to live this life. But the way we adults most quickly learn new skills and new abilities when we're totally unfamiliar with what we're being asked to do is by following the example of others. I have a subsidiary organism, a company in uh, East Africa. And as I travel around Africa, it was also the true, the true when I was traveling around Russia. Many times meals are set in front of me that I have no idea what they are. And I don't know whether this is a finger food. I don't know whether this is a fork food. I don't know if it's an insult to try to cut it. I, I, I have no idea how to eat this. What do you do when you find yourself in a situation like that? You look around to see somebody who seems to know what to do, and you watch them for a few moments, and then you act like you've been doing that your whole life. <laughs> that is what your situation would be like as a young Christian in the first century. Coming out of your heathen and pagan background, you needed to see someone who shows you how to do it so that you can imitate them. And Paul doesn't hesitate to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So that's the role these elders are playing. And you're not surprised when you're told as a young Christian the things that you're looking for are to be found in your relationship with the elders. Because the concept of eldership was so common to the ancient world. If you looked at the ancient world, all of the great cultures of the ancient world were noted for having elders. If you go to... First, uh, to Genesis chapter 15, when Joseph's father, Abraham, dies, Joseph takes him up to, uh, takes his body up to Canaan in order to bury him. And we're told that the elders of Egypt made the journey with him. We find when Israel is moving out into the wilderness, and they come up against the Moabites and the Midianites who are trembling at the power of this Israeli army that's coming. They go to try to hire a prophet named Balaam to put a curse on Israel. And it, we're told that the elders of Midian and Moab went to talk to them. The people of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, were so afraid of Joshua's army when he finally invaded the promised land that they deceived him. Uh, they went in disguise as though they were from a distant place and, and were very poor and very uh, 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 very starved and didn't even have clothing that was in good shape and, and begged him to be merciful on their city and he formed a covenant with them before he learned <laughs> they're really from the next town over. But the people who pulled off the deception were the elders, the Gibeonite elders. 
So there is this tradition that is there in the ancient world, and it's there in all the nations of Mesopotamia. It is there in Greece and Rome that a group of people called elders are sort of coordinating the affairs of the, of the people. In fact, the Roman Senate takes its name, Senatus, the word that means an elder. The senators were the elders of the city. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice about these, these people who are called elders in these cities is that they act as a group. They don't act as individuals. You never find a single example in Scripture, Old or New Testament, of elders acting as individuals. They are a collective group that collectively takes on the responsibility to care for the people in their charge. The only place that you find individual activity is when they're teaching or preaching. But they're not individual decision makers. They are a collective body that brings its wisdom together to guide the well-being of the community. So you would not be surprised that you would be pushed in the direction of the elders in the church as being the people that you should turn to. And in fact, in Titus chapter 1, as Paul talks about why he has left Titus behind on the island of Crete, he makes the interesting statement that I left you there for the purpose of completing what still needs to be done by appointing elders in every church. Now the churches were established, they were apparently fairly strong, they were fairly dynamic. But Titus said, but Paul says to Titus, there's something that is still missing because you don't have an eldership in place. And you Christians need elders as someone they can turn to with confidence to know that what they are being taught is correct. And you Christians need elders who can serve as role models to help them understand what it is that is expected of them in their practical Christian life. And yet, while we have these qualifications for elders spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, we looked at them extensively in the Bible class this morning. One of the interesting things, and the question that I would pose to you is, why does the Bible say more about the qualifications of elders than their duties and responsibilities? Why... Why is so little, by way of a job description, given us? Well, there are a couple of possible answers to that. Both of them, I think, somewhat appropriate. One answer is that by being rather general in outlining the responsibilities of elders, the New Testament allows for cultural flexibility. One of the great problems that the Islamic faith faces today is that the standards by which the Islamic world must operate were standards that were developed in the 7th and 8th century in Arabia, and they worked in that culture. But it is very difficult to make them work in other cultures because the Islamic faith wasn't 
designed and developed from the beginning to be global. They had global ambitions, but the faith itself was not thought through in terms of how do you apply this globally except by the force of arms. Christianity from the beginning was going to be a global religion. I want you to take the gospel to every nation, Jesus told the apostles. And that word nation there is ethne, the root of our word ethnic. And it doesn't mean nations as we think of nations today as Colombia, Mexico, Canada, France, England. It means every ethnic group, every language group. Jesus told the disciples, I want you to go into every ethnic enclave with the gospel. So from the very beginning, the gospel was going to cross some significant cultural boundaries. And that being true, we need the flexibility for leaders to lead in the way that's most appropriate within that culture. And so, though we have some general provisions as to what elders are to do, it's not spelled out with a lot of specificity because the specific application may need to change from culture to culture. The other possibility, and I think equally valid, is that the people who were hearing the gospel in the first century were not reading the New Testament because it was still coming into existence. What Bible did they read on Sunday mornings? They read the Old Testament. That was their Bible. The Psalms were their songbook. And when they read the Old Testament, elders were everywhere. In ancient Israel, you had elders at a number of different levels. You had elders over every city. You had elders over every tribe. You had elders over the nation. When Hezekiah was dying, he sent the elders of the priesthood to Isaiah to ask for God's intervention and to spare his life. Everywhere you go in the Old Testament, you see elders at work. And you see what they were doing in their communities and for their people. And so when you, as a new Christian, hear someone say, the elders are the leaders of our congregation, you immediately have a sense of what an elder does because you've been reading about elders guiding communities in all of this material that you've seen in the Old Testament. Their Bible. As a consequence, it's sort of like if I said, Ron, I want you to be an umpire at the ball game next week. Ron's not going to say, well, now give me a list of all the things an umpire needs to do. Anyone in this room knows what an umpire does. At least well enough that you know, he can put on his, his outfit and go out there and umpire. That's the way they were with elders. You didn't have to tell these people what elders were going to do. They, they saw elders at work throughout the Old Testament and in their own communities. Because even in the first century, communities were still led by groups of elders. So what were the things that these elders in Israel were doing? Can you give me that slide, please? The slide on the elders in Israel were well taken. Is it up? Thank you. First of all, here are the things that we've already listed. They conducted the governments of every city, each tribe, uh, made decisions for Israel as a whole, and coordinated the priests. 
By the first century, they oversee the synagogues. Now, there are no synagogues in the Old Testament. They emerged about the time of the Babylonian captivity because the Jews had been scattered from their homeland and they didn't have their places of worship, their temple any longer, and the porches and, and courts of the temple. And so they began to develop synagogues as places of assembly and worship. And elders led those synagogues. And probably many elders in the early church were elders who had served as elders in the synagogues and became Christians and simply brought that set of skills with them. And in the days of Jesus and the apostles, they also constituted the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jews. And it was constituted by 71 elders who were the final court of appeals for decisions made by lower groups of elders. So if a city's eldership had made a decision that the people didn't care for, they could appeal it and appeal it, and ultimately the Sanhedrin would make that decision. But as we go on from the elders in ancient Israel, the role that they played was that, first of all, they were easily available to the people for counsel. And so when someone in the first century was told, you need to turn to the elders for the guidance you need, they would immediately have thought of someone who is easily accessible. Because in the cities of ancient Israel, where did you find the elders? Every time we find them mentioned, they're sitting at the city gate where everybody's coming and going so that it's easy for people to get their counsel, their advice, their judicious decisions. So first of all, the elders were easily available to the people for counsel. Secondly, they mediated interpersonal and family disputes. The Law of Moses says, if you've got a son who's rebellious and you don't know what to do with him, go to the elders at the city gates and talk to them about it. We have the dispute about who has the right to marry Ruth. How's that settled? All the interested parties meet with the elders at the city gates, and they work through it. And finally, Boaz secures the right to marry Ruth, and he makes a covenant to that regard, and the elders serve as witnesses to this solemn commitment. Elders in the cities often served as the witnesses to the entering of covenants or the sealing of a business deal. Uh, their reputation, their credibility, made them appropriate witnesses for those sort of things. They assisted with certain sacrifices. And the law of Moses, if the nation committed a great sin unknowingly and then had to offer a sin offering for the nation because of this sin that had been committed, Moses provided that before the priest sacrificed the bull, the elders of Israel were to gather around the bull and put their hands on it and confess the sin of their nation. So they took part in certain religious ceremonies. It was the elders who confirmed, anointed, and later served as the advisory council to the king. And then, once kings were raising their own armies, it was the elders who served as their war council. So if you had been reading the Old Testament, you would have seen elders providing all of these functions. And separate from the war council, although I know some elders have taken their congregations to war, uh, separate from the war council, this really translates directly over into what the New Testament expects of elders. They are to be accessible to their people, and their roles are not going to be necessarily that of clergy, 
although some of them will serve as teaching elders, their functions are going to be rather fluid because you're responding to the needs of the body. What I need to do today to respond to the needs of the body are different from the responsibilities I may have tomorrow. Uh, not all of them had the same level of responsibility. You had higher groups of elders, tribal elders, national elders, as well as local elders. So there were differing scales of responsibility. And they acted collectively, as we've already said. So what is it that the New Testament does tell us that these elders are responsible for doing? Let's just close with this little list. And what you will see is that it is basically an extension of what you as a young Christian in the first century would have already known about what elders do from your experience with the elders who led your community and from your reading of the Old Testament. First of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the midst of the qualities that he describes for uh, determining who should be uh, considered as an elder, Paul says that uh, elders need to care for the church. The requirement is he's got to be someone who manages his household well because if he doesn't know how to manage his household well, how will he be able to care for the church? So first and foremost, elders are about caring for the church. That embraces a lot of things, keeping it healthy, keeping it united, keeping it focused on what's most important keeping it true to the care of God. The, the word in the book of Genesis that describes what Adam and Eve were to do in the garden, we normally translate it, they were to dress the garden. Basically, the Hebrew means they were to nurse the garden. They were to do everything possible to give the garden full health and strength. We can make that same application here. The first and foremost calling of the elders is not to be a governing council, not to be decision makers. It is to care for the body, keep it healthy and strong and focused, united, true to God's word. Secondly, they are to lead the congregation. Unfortunately, the King James translated the word proistemi here as rule. And the word rule sometimes comes across with a sense of a pretty strong hand. But the word proistemi, where it appears in other places in Scripture, simply means to stand before and, and, and to bring people along. It, it's a gentle kind of rule. It's an, using one's influence to bring people uh, to the place that they need to be. They are to teach and preach in some cases, but not necessarily all. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7, attain that uh, those elders are worthy of special honor who do a good job of teaching and preaching. So there were other elders whose gifts might not have been teaching and preaching, but they were part of the core that was caring for the congregation. Titus, he says that they have to be people who are really committed to the word because, first of all, they are to use the word to exhort and encourage the congregation. Uh, that word exhort means to bring comfort. Courage means to bring resolve. So they are to exhort and encourage the congregation by their example, but by their public teaching and their collective decisions as well. Um, as part of that teaching, they are to know the scripture well enough that they can refute things that are taught that are not right. 
keep in mind, as this young Christian, you don't know who to believe, and there are a lot of teachers out there teaching things that are more their imagination than historic reality. And the elders have to be able to, to respond to that kind of misrepresentation and appropriately explain what truth is by contrast. They, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, are to shepherd those in their charge. They're to be pastors. They're to have pastoral care. And to avoid being autocratic. Their, their leadership is not to be heavy-handed. It's not to be dictatorial. It's not to be tyrannical. But rather, the way that they are to lead is to serve as role models for new Christians. That's why their lives need to be now, in a world today where many of us grew up in churches that had responsible, mature leadership, and we understand that leaders need to provide these kinds of functions, it may seem a bit redundant to come back over them again. But I've spent much of the last 15 or 16 years working in settings where the first generation of Christians are forming churches across Eastern Europe after 70 years of atheism. And the challenge is often finding the leaders for that church because they don't understand this concept of authority and this concept of leadership. The only authority and leadership they've ever seen in their history is the heavy-handed rule of the czars or the tyranny of communism. So when they then are asked to lead a congregation, they sometimes turn into tyrants, not shepherds. And we've worked that problem constantly and are still working it all across Eastern Europe. We take it for granted this is what leaders in the church ought to do. When you work in a world where people don't have the same presuppositions from their upbringing that we have, you realize what a radical concept of leadership Paul was laying out when he spelled out these expectations and then Peter amended him with the ones that he had. So you're at a critical moment, an important moment, in selecting those people who will carry the torch of this tradition forward, to care and nurture for this church, to see that its teaching is healthy, to see that its stand for truth is uncompromising, to see that it is there as a response, in a responsive way, to all the myriad of needs that come up with the body, and making themselves accessible to be counselors, teachers, comforters, prayer partners, whatever it takes to build each of us up in the most holy faith. So if you think about the people that you would nominate for this position, think in terms of people who bring that kind of life commitment to their everyday lives and have the promise then of even building more on that in the future. Lynn Anderson and I have often done work together helping churches work through difficult problems and their leadership. And one of the things that I really kind of appreciate about Lynn's perspective is that you really ought to make elders of people who are already acting as shepherds. You can't expect people who've never been shepherding to become elders and suddenly become shepherds because they put on a new title. 
So look among yourselves and find those who are already, already have a shepherd's heart and already live like a shepherd. Put those people in a place that they can carry this church forward to that great, great future that the Lord would want it to have. Thank you very much. Appreciate you very much. Stay together as we sing. In the weak city.